This morning is the third in an annual series on founding mothers of Unitarian Universalism. Two years ago, we focused on Margaret Fuller, who along with Emerson and Thoreau is one of the three most important of our transcendentalist forebears. Fuller's 1845 pamphlet, uh, Women in the 19th Century, was the first significant work to take the liberal side and the question of women's rights since the days of Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Woman 50 years earlier. Fuller was also America's first uh, female foreign correspondent, but tragically she died on her return um, trip back to America on a shipwreck uh, 300 yards from the U.S. coast. She had never been taught to swim. She was only 40 years old. Last year, we considered the Peabody sisters, Uh, Mary Peabody, an important educator in her own right, who married Horace Mann, a politician and educational reformer. Uh, Sophia Peabody, a talented painter who married Nathaniel Hawthorne, the novelist whose most well-known work is A Scarlet Letter. And most significantly, we focused on Elizabeth Peabody, the author and translator of a half a dozen books, who also became the publisher herself of Nathaniel Hawthorne, William Ellery Channing, Theodore Parker, and Margaret Fuller under her own uh, imprint, E.P. Peabody Publishing. She was also the celebrated founder of kindergartens in America. In future years, I look forward to telling you about other founding mothers of Unitarian Universalism, such as Judith Sargent Murray, an early American advocate for women's rights who was married to John Murray, the founder of Universalism in America, that uh, universalist half of our UU heritage. Uh, Olympia Brown, another universalist who in 1863 became the first woman ordained with full denominational authority. Sophia Lyon Foz, who revolutionized 20th century uh, UU religious education. I actually planned to speak to you this year about Mary Moody Emerson, who was Ralph Waldo Emerson's aunt, whom he called his earliest and best teacher. Uh, But when I saw that the influential feminist literary critic Elaine Showalter had published a new biography of Julia Ward Howe, uh, she jumped to the top of my list. Now, in these history-based sermons, my intent is not to overwhelm you with names and dates. Rather, my hope is that your take, if you can keep up with all the names and dates, great. But my concern more is that your takeaway will be the larger point that we, Unitarian Universalists, stand on the shoulders of giants, many of whom were path-breaking, paradigm-shifting women. It's important to retell these stories from our history, that we might continue to inscribe them into our sense of self, allowing them to inspire us to live more boldly, freely, and compassionately in our own time. So turning to this year's focus on Julia Ward Howe, allow me to begin with just a brief overview of her life, and then I'll go back and fill in some of the details. So in an interesting balance that she did not pre-plan, and that sort of shows, though, the priorities, that, the competing priorities that Julia tried to give to her life, she had six children, she learned six languages, and she wrote six books. Born in 1819, three days after Queen Victoria, she was sometimes called the Queen of America. 
When she married Dr. Samuel Gridley Howe, Julia Ward was an aspiring poet, a beautiful, accomplished, and studious heiress known in New York social circles as the diva. Howe, uh, her future husband, was a world-famous doctor who had developed a method for educating blind children. And to give you just a brief sense of the circles in which they moved, Florence Nightingale was the godmother of one of their daughters, and when they went to London, Dickens was their guide. They were devoted and imaginative parents to their children, but between themselves and in private, their marriage was deeply turbulent and unstable. It was a prolonged battle over sex, money, independence, politics, and power, all the usual suspects. Writing the battle hymn of the Republic was the turning point in her life, and after her husband's death in 1876, Julia was finally free to fully forge her own identity, and for the second half of her life, she was a leader in the fight for women's suffrage. She died in 1910 at the age of 91, having lived a remarkable, if often also troubled, life. So to go back to the beginning, to begin filling in some details, in her early childhood, Julia was like a princess in a fairy tale. And while being a princess has its advantages, as any Disney movie will remind you, there are also downsides. Strict expectations around behavior and dress Uh, severe limits on your freedom, and pressure not to follow your bliss and find your own way in this life, but to find happiness through marrying an alleged Prince Charming. As Julia wrote in her memoir, My dear father, with all his noble generosity and overweening affection, sometimes also appeared to be my jailer. Tragically, her mother, Julia Cutler Ward, after whom she was named, died of a postpartum infection after bearing her seventh child. She was only 27. At the time, Julia was five years old, and her mother's death caused caused a huge shift in her childhood. Their Manhattan house was in one of New York City's most desirable neighborhoods, and they moved at the center of high society. But as Julia's mother had grown ill, she had reverted back to the theologically conservative Calvinism of her childhood. Likewise, Julia's father, in his grief, became a convert to his wife's Calvinistic piety and a model of evangelical piety and sobriety. He became a champion of temperance, much to the chagrin of all the people he used to party with, who used to party at his house. They moved to a new house, and the parties ended. To share just one of the ways these events impacted Julia, her father, who never remarried, began to make Julia take his wife's former place at mealtime. So while he would eat with his right hand, he would hold Julia's right hand with his left, never realizing that she too was right-handed and couldn't eat until he was done eating. He was presumably okay with that. Uh, Suffice it to say, uh, Freud would have had a field day both with Julia's childhood and its impact on her choice of husband. When Julia was 20, her father died at age 55, and influenced by his example following her mother's death, Julia herself entered into a two-year period of extreme Calvinistic piety. Finally, a friend of Margaret Fuller's intervened, a mutual friend that that knew Margaret Fuller and had been part of Margaret Fuller's conversations in Boston, uh, intervened with Julia and said, you would be a lot happier as a Unitarian. 
and she was. And so she began, after that conversion, finally looking to her future. So at age 22, Julia finally was beginning to make a modest intellectual reputation for herself, publishing reviews of literary works as the the diva, her operatic singing voice, her musical abilities, her beauty, her personality uh, made her popular and admired in New York. And she was a great heiress. Uh, Samuel Ward's estate, divided among the six children, has been estimated at $6 million. Keep in mind, that's in the 19th century. But less than four years after her father's death, Julia married Samuel Gridley Howe, a father figure 18 years her senior. Dr. Howe was known by the nickname Chev, that's a shorthand version of his title, Chevalier of the Order of Saint Savior of the King of Greece, for being one of the U.S. citizens who came to the aid during the Greek War of Independence in the 1820s. Both Chev and Julia were deeply formed in the 19th century cultural context in which a woman, particularly a woman that came from money, was expected to find her sole fulfillment as a wife and as a mother. To share just one example of how that 19th century context influenced their brief courtship, she wrote a letter to her sister saying, Yesterday I sat with the Chev and said to him, I shall try to please you and everything. And you would think that might be enough. You know, your, your fiancé saying, I shall try to please you in everything. But Samuel Gridley Howe saw that as an opportunity to say, what, said he, even to the paring of a nail? And so Julia confesses to her, to her sisters, my dear children, you know the sad state of my, the general sad state of my unfortunate nails. And she says, of course, I ran instantly upstairs and cut them very short, at which he was most pleased. But just as Julia unrealistically tried to be the perfect wife at the beginning of their relationship, Chev also was initially accommodating in ways that he would be unwilling to maintain, such as accepting her unusual request at the time to be known formally not as Mrs. Samuel Gridley Howe, but as Mrs. Julia Ward Howe. Both parties ignored the warning signs of the rift and conflict to come. Despite her reservations about motherhood, and also she wanted to have about a two to three year courtship, and he demanded, you know, we need need to get married immediately, we need to start having kids immediately, so she had reservations about both marriage and motherhood, but their wedding was in late April, and she was pregnant by August. Julia had serious battles with depression around each of her pregnancies, likely related at least in part to the circumstances of her own mother's tragic death when she was five. However, as she became increasingly unhappy in general in her marriage, she began to channel her discontent into her art, um, fascinating, most fascinatingly into a novel about an intersex child. So keep in mind, again, this is the mid-19th century, and she's writing a novel about a child born with both male and female sexual organs who is raised as a boy by his parents. The protagonist, Lawrence, is the poet and adventurer she might have been if she had been born a boy. The unfinished manuscript lay undiscovered in tin boxes of her unsorted writings until 1977 and was finally published in 2004. But she didn't, it's probably good she kept that secret 
for the most part, uh, but she did not keep all of her work secret. In the same year that Chev had a book embarrassingly rejected for publication, she had a book of poetry titled Passion Flowers. Not only was it accepted for publication, it was very popular. Theodore Parker, a famous Unitarian minister, quoted it in his Christmas sermon. It went into a second printing. It went into a third printing. It was a little racy uh, sexually. Uh, uh, so, uh, so needless to say, the intersection of Julia's um, literary success with Chev's literary failure did not help their already deeply troubled relationship. He was not a good sport about it. But the next decade of the 1860s was the biggest turning point in Julia's life. Deeply moved by visiting Civil War camps and hospitals, Julia woke in the middle of the night and wrote new lyrics to the tune, John Brown's Body, verses that became the famous battle hymn of the Republic. Now keep in mind that Chev was one of the secret six who helped fund John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. He had give, they had entertained John Brown in their home. Chev had given him $50. It later came to light. The New York Times published the names of the secret six because John Brown left them lying around in the barn where they had practiced, and then he fled to Canada. There's more to say about all of that. I'll, I'll preach at some point a sermon about Samuel Gridley Howe. He is most certainly the villain in, in her story. It's a little different from his perspective. We can talk about that later. But historians have written that without Julia Ward Howe, John Brown may not have become so fused with American myth. She caught, so keep in mind that Calvinism that her mother had taken on and then her father and that she had taken on for two years. So she sort of understood deeply, existentially, John Brown, this devout Calvinist who considered himself predestined to stamp out slavery. Now he failed, but she helped couple his God-inspired anti-slavery slavery to the North's mission during the Civil War that, and thus helped define America. Remember that when the Civil War began, it was far from clear if the North was in the fight only to preserve the Union or if it was also to end slavery. Lincoln was certainly a moderate. Julia's Battle Hymn of the Republic was written in November 1961, more than a year before the January 1st, 1963 Emancipation Proclamation from President Lincoln. And, And it helped catalyze popular support for using the Civil War as an opportunity to end slavery once and for all. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He had loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on. I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have built 
blues and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His day is marching on. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with the glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free while God is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. While God is marching on. Thank you. Beautiful. The Battle Hymn of the Republic used to be a staple in Unitarian hymnals. If you look at our last few hymnals, it's disappeared. I did find one of our older ones that it has the Battle Hymn of the Republic, but it doesn't have Julia Ward Howe's lyrics. It has a different set of lyrics to it. And certainly the theology of Julia Ward Howe in the 19th century is not our 21st century UU theology. However, as a historian, I... I feel like there's a a loss there that when we exclude these incredibly impactful hymns from our hymnals, we lose some of our our touch with the past of how you know, our forebears were part of the abolitionist cause and took great risk in the ways that that can in turn inspire us in our work for Black Lives Matter and for dismantling, continuing to dismantle racism today. So I hope there's ways we can find in future hymnals to you know, put it in an appendix, you know, set it apart, but to not, to not forget these pieces of our history. But building on the popularity of the battle hymn, Julia became increasingly active in public life. In the coming years, she was elected president of the New England Woman's Suffrage Association. She delivered her Mother's Day proclamation for peace that you heard C. Raven read earlier. She did not become fully free, however, until 1876, following Chev's death from a stroke. And although they reconciled and confessed the ways they did love each other on uh, his deathbed, it was too late to change his will, assuming he would even have done so. And although Chev knew that he had squandered, he might have been a denial, but he should have known on a certain level he had squandered much of Julia's vast inheritance through his poor investment choices. He sold uh, wonderful real estate in New York to invest in neighborhoods in Boston that did eventually do really well about a century and a half after, you know, they had died. Um, So although he had lost most of her inheritance, he punishingly left her nothing in his will. But after so many years of abuse from him, she responded to this news 
matter-of-factly. It was just one more in a long line of abusive things he had done towards her. And despite his, uh, this financial downturn, uh, she embarked on a two-year trip to Europe with her youngest daughter, which left her $3,500 in debt. But Julia Ward Howe was just getting started on her new life and would not be held back any longer. And indeed, the two decades of her 60s and her 70s were her golden years. With the help of her eldest brother, she moved into a prominent new house on Beacon Street and began to entertain in the extravagant manner that she remembered from her earliest childhood memories back when she was three and four and five before her mother's death. Famous guests at her parties in those years included the Irish writer Oscar Wilde. And although she was born in 1819, she lived through the first full decade of the 20th century, and modern technology delighted her, including long-distance telephones, phonographs, riding in fast cars, motorcycles, and she especially loved the elevator that was installed in her house. There's much more to say about the triumphs and the travails of Julia Ward Howe, but for now I will leave you with the closing words from Elaine Showalter from her excellent new biography, The Civil Wars of Julia Ward Howe. She began her life as a damsel, imprisoned in an enchanted castle. She ended it an international icon. As a young wife, she had painfully come to the realization that her husband could not be the partner that she had dreamed of, no matter how many times she sacrificed her wishes to his command. As a mother, she slowly revived her, revised her concept of maternity and questioned its centrality in women's lives. During the U.S. Civil War, Julia began to freshly understand that she was also fighting a domestic and personal civil war. She never achieved the level of feminine self-denial and scorn of material wealth that we still demand from our female saints, but she wrote at the end of her life, I do not desire an ecstatic and disembodied sainthood. I would rather be human. I would rather be American. I would rather be a woman. She won her civil wars, She won her place in American history. So this Mother's Day, who has mothered you? Who have you mothered? What are you striving to give birth to in your life? Because Julia Ward Howe was a mother in the biological sense, but she was also a mother to the women's rights movement and to the literary and art scene. What legacy do you feel led to leave. And as we reflect on how doing that sort of work of mothering, of birthing, of legacy leaving is both difficult and rewarding, I invite you to rise and body your spirit as we sing together hymn 1015, I Know I Can. Go in peace.